it's very apparent why the main photo of the model on a campaign is never a woman of colour or a black woman, especially in the Australian market. And I guess I just got really fed up with that and could see that there was just such a huge, huge gap because I was buying a lot of beauty. But I'm like, well, if I'm buying these beauty products and these brands aren't even speaking to me, imagine what can happen when there's a brand that does speak to me. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo, and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. We're chatting to Maver Heim, founder of Bread Beauty Supply, a natural hair care brand designed for textured hair. Over the last few years, Maver has been working quietly but tirelessly to bring the bread brand to life in an effort to shake up the hair care industry and their stale and outdated standards of what's considered beautiful and healthy. Maver was one of the first Aussies to be accepted into the Sephora Accelerator program in the US and shortly after managed to secure a deal with them before even launching her first product. She then went on to raise almost $2 million from Imaginary Ventures, the same investors that have backed big brands like Glossier and Skims. And after only six months on the market, she has her sights set on international expansion and growing the bread team. This is a really special chat for us, not only because Maver has gone on to achieve some incredible things in such a short time, but because she's actually one of the original co-founders of Lady Brains. Maver is our third musketeer. We kicked off this conversation by asking Maeva about her introduction into hair care at a young age. So we want you to take us back, back to the start, back to the beginning. You're currently in Western Australia in Perth um, with the fam. And we know that's obviously where you, where you began, but where were you introduced to hair care? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, well, I was actually introduced to, I guess, hair care and the hair care industry here in Perth um, via my mum. So I grew up here, I was born here, um, and my mum had basically like an African hair braiding salon here in Perth in the 90s growing up. And it was basically this shed connected to the back of an Italian restaurant in Northbridge, which is kind of like the downtown, like city area. And I just remember going there all the time, like on weekends, during school holidays, I would go there with my friends. Sometimes my friends and I would like busk outside of the Classic. <laughs> I'd put a little hat out and do little dances and stuff. Um, so it was a really kind of I don't know, it was like this integral part of my childhood, this salon. And I think at the time, like, I love hated it. Like, I hated that I had to be there all the time. Um, but I also kind of look back and 
just love the experience that I had there, which was, you know, getting to know clients, you know, answering phones, taking bookings for my mum, helping to braid hair and do hairstyles and all of those things. And I remember that she had these panels at the front of the store and they were like, I think they were shutter blinds or something, but she connected them to the walls and they were just covered in pictures Mm -hmm. of all of the people like that she had braided or that I had helped braid and cornrows and all sorts of different styles. And so it was a really like community place. We used to get a lot of tourists that would come there to get their hair done because it was the only salon like that at the time in Perth and probably one of very few in the whole of Australia as well. Um, So that was kind of my first introduction to hair. I kind of grew up with it. Um, And we would import a lot of hair care products from the United States to come like and sell in the salon. Um, And so I was really familiar with a lot of those products from that time. And I, as I got a little bit older and was very much a child of the internet, (laughs) I would (laughs) kind of go online and um, be on all of these hair care forums, finding out, you know, what people were using, what the next big thing was that we didn't have in Perth yet and finding supplies in China and importing products and weaves and lace wigs and things that, you know, no one had heard of in Perth at the time. I don't think we discovered that Beyonce wears lace wigs sometimes until (laughs) (laughs) many, many years later. It was like a celebrity (laughs) secret. Um, And so, yeah, I was really entrenched in kind of hair and, and that space, but had absolutely no intention or any idea that I would end up back here. (laughs) as an adult. Well, it's funny because you kind of started your career or your studies in law and then you ultimately did kind of do a full circle and end up at L'Oreal working in brand and marketing. Can you tell us a little bit about how that L'Oreal experience shaped your perception of the beauty industry and kind of your, um, I guess, the reason behind why you wanted to start your own brand in the beauty and hair care space? Yeah, I think, you know, I studied law because that was my interest at the time. And I think I've always been someone that feels quite passionately about communities that don't have a a voice or a voice that's being heard and and really wanting to kind of fight for or stick up for, um, you know, groups that don't necessarily get heard in a lot of spaces and in the law, that's very evident. And so that was my reasoning for wanting to go into law. And I had always planned on working in, you know, social justice or in the criminal law or, you know, working for the UN, something like that. That was my ambition at the time, but kind of got to the end of that and realised that I wanted to do something a bit more creative and that the law felt very siloed and also that I wanted to make a really big difference and I wasn't sure that law was going to get me there. So ended up on the business side of things, working at L'Oreal in the beauty space and it was (laughs) never my intention to end up in in beauty overall either. (laughs) But I guess while I was there, I, I think in the beginning I didn't notice it as much because it wasn't necessarily evident to me that I wasn't this customer that the brands that I was working on was speaking to. It wasn't until I had kind of been there for a little while that, you know, lots of little things happen along the way and and you start to realise more broadly that the industry, oh, like, this is not for me. Like, these brands aren't speaking to me. These products aren't for me. Decisions are being made behind the scenes that, you know, it's quite evident why the industry is the way that it is. It's evident why mm. there aren't enough foundation shades for everybody and you can't mm. go into store and, and buy it. And um, it's very apparent why the main photo of the model on a campaign is never a woman of colour or mm. a black woman, especially in the Australian market. Um, and I guess I just got really fed up with that 
and could see that there was just such a huge, huge gap um, because I was buying a lot of beauty. But I'm mm. like, well, if I'm buying these beauty products and these brands aren't even speaking to me, imagine what can happen when there's a brand that does speak to me. Like, imagine the spend that there would be and, mm. and the loyalty and all of those things. And I knew that there would be so many other women and just people in general who felt the same way and felt really um, left out by the beauty industry. And I kind of had this know-how um, and had learnt, you know, the ins and outs of brand management while I was at L'Oreal and um, felt like I could leave and make that difference and do something that I wasn't seeing in the market. So then how long was it? What year was that? Because how long was it between when you had that realisation that, hey, I could create something here and speak to me and other people like me and then actually taking action and starting to develop, you know, a hair care brand? I'm pretty sure this was 2000 and it must have been 2016 um, or early 2017. Um, and then I, I left L'Oreal knowing that I wanted to start a brand. Mm. I had no idea what the brand would be. I just knew that our mission was to make the space more diverse, to provide better products and better services for women of colour and especially women who look like me as well. And I knew that I wasn't ready to kind of take that full leap yet. I wasn't ready to go full time into it. So I thought, what's my next best step? to get there, like when I'm ready. And so I ended up um, taking a role at the League of Extraordinary Women so that I could be surrounded by not just the entrepreneurs who were running that business and understanding their processes and how they got to where they are, but also being part of a community like Lady Brains is where there were so many other female entrepreneurs um, and I would get to kind of know them and, and figure out, you know, what other women were doing um, and learn as much as I could before I was at that point where I could take the leap full time. So at what point did bread the idea start to crystallise? Because I think I remember like potentially it was a beauty brand, not a hair care brand that you were thinking mm-hmm. of in the beginning and then there, there was a different name before you came up with bread. So oh, God. I, can, can, we, can we share what it was or no? <laughs> did I tell you guys? I yeah, probably yeah, did, yeah, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah look. <laughs> I went with the traditional now. first, which is, um, yes, it was, I was exploring makeup. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, this was pre-Fenty. And Fenty as a brand really came to the market and put a stake in the ground and said, like, we are here and we are inclusive from the get-go in the sense that, you know, they had, I think they launched with 40 shades. Um, And prior to that, I was like, I want to launch a brand that has 100 shades of foundation or maybe it's like a custom thing. And there are a lot of ideas in that space that I was exploring. Um, And then Fenty came onto the scene. (laughs) But it wasn't actually, um, I think I had, I had pivoted before that happened and the pivot to hair care happened because of, you know, a personal experience, Mm. which was, you know, I'd been chemically straightening my hair for my whole life, like since I was six or seven and my mum used to do it for me at the salon and um, as I got older I started doing it myself, but I was on a trip. So it was while I was working at the league and we were on the trip in the United States and we flew from New York to go to Colorado and I had one of my relaxers in the suitcase. And when I arrived in Colorado, opened up the suitcase and the relaxer had exploded over all of my stuff. And I'm in the middle of nowhere, didn't have access to get another one. And this was something that I had been doing 
as I said, since I was six or seven. So it was like 20 plus years mm. of my hair being technically straight um, and never having dealt with my natural texture because my hair was either chemically straightened with a weave in it or I had braids or I had something. Like my entire life, that was my normal. And so in that moment, I kind of realised that I had been transitioning a lot of my skincare and body care products over to things that were more natural or more clean. I was just becoming more conscious of reading ingredient labels and then realising that I was putting this relaxer on my head, on my scalp, which is also skin and one of the most absorbent parts of the body, um, every three to six months. And that that was probably a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I just decided that I would stop. Um, not understanding exactly what that would mean and what that entire process would be like. <laughs> um, but once I got access to the shops again, I was like, okay, great. I'm going to go and find hair care products that are designed for my texture um, because I'd been using general products my whole life. My hair was technically straight, so I could. And when I got to the multicultural hair care aisle, which is the way that they kind of segment it in a lot of retail spaces in the US, I was just really shocked and very much felt like I had gone back to the 90s. <laughs> I was in my mm. mom's salon again. Mm. All of the brands really looked and felt the same. Um, and as a, you know, a millennial consumer, as I like to say <laughs> myself. Um, we're still cool, I swear. Yeah, so cool. <laughs> so cool. I just, I didn't feel like I could relate to any of the brands that were there. And I was like, I'm ready to spend a lot of money. Mm. I don't want to buy anything here. And it was also extremely overwhelming mm. and confusing. And there were so many different products and the same product with 30 different names. And I was like, can someone just tell me how to wash my hair? Because I, <laughs> this is too much. And that's kind of how the idea for bread was born. I thought there's nothing here. Every other category in cosmetics and consumer has moved on mm. so far. And it really felt like this particular segment had been left behind. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that there's not a lot of investment in this space mm. in the same way that you see it in other categories. Right. Um, and so I was kind of coming at it from this almost outsider point of view because I didn't grow up in the United States um, and didn't have the same kind of shopping or brand experiences as people who did. And so it was almost like I was seeing something that other people weren't seeing because mm. I was an outsider. Mm-hmm. And went away and, and kind of started building the concept of bread, looking at the market research, seeing that relaxer sales had declined significantly um, and that so many other women were going through this process, this kind of almost coming of age where they're like, I'm going to stop relaxing my hair. Or even younger women who never start relaxing mm. their hair but still are growing up in a way where there is no brand that they can relate to and latch onto as their hair care brand. Um, and I wanted to be that brand for all of those women. Did you feel like at that time you were just like, oh my God, like this is it. Like it, it, it aligns with your personal experience. It relates to your upbringing, your mum, like all of the pieces of the puzzle feel like they just go together. Is that the kind of experience that you had in that moment? Yes and no. Yes. In the sense that I was like, holy crap. Like, nobody is doing this. Mm. Like, nobody. And 
I also felt like if someone was going to do it, because there are a lot of brands that have, you know, the resources and the, and the funding to do it, but I felt like if nobody had done it yet, that nobody was going to do it. And mm. that that's where the opportunity was because I was like, well, I really want to do this and I can see that nobody else is going to. Um, I didn't actually connect the dots to my past <sighs> and, and all of those things until I had to reflect on it. <laughs> started getting asked these sorts of questions where it's like, what was your upbringing like? And I thought, oh my God, I've been in the hair care industry for almost my entire life. This is <laughs> my mum's legacy almost, um, which is so strange. But um, yeah, in that moment, it, I, I really did not connect the dots. <laughs> That's funny that you yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Especially because, I mean, you know, like anyone who would see the bread branding, like you have the most incredible brand brain, like unbelievable brand brain, both from a visual point of view, but also from a brand story, brand narrative, you know, brand language kind of point of view. And so my my thought would be that that was a brand story that you really mm. intentionally crafted. And I'm sure you have crafted crafted it over time, but it's interesting to hear that it was sort of happenstance almost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that once you look back and you connect the dots, you're like, oh, wow, there is an amazing brand story here. Yeah. But the fact that it was kind of, I mean, I guess in a way organic um, makes it all the more powerful. Totally. Um, and I, I actually recall a couple of times like almost fighting against it because I had worked at L'Oreal and I worked across like every category except for hair. And there was only one point in my entire kind of career there where I considered moving over to the hair care division. Um, but kind of dropped that thought very quickly because I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to be in hair. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and I remember when I had told a colleague as well, like I'm leaving and I want to start a brand. And the first thing that she said to me was like, oh, you're going to start a hair care brand for like textured hair. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Fuck no. I'm not absolutely my mum. I am not my mum. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Oh, love that. That is very funny. And it's often sometimes the things that we push away, we repel that we end up being attracted to. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So you said you mentioned that you were transitioning over in terms of your beauty to more natural products, but hair care, you were still trying to figure out, you know, what do I buy? What do I use on myself? You have been able to create and use really interesting um, ingredients in your hair care products. Can you talk us through what you've used, how you managed to source those natural ingredients and what the the whole process of creating something brand new was like? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the most difficult pieces mm. is that manufacturing process. And I think every beauty founder goes through this where they're like, where do I even start? And then once you start getting into it, like I, I think, you know, in a future life, you know, if everything goes well with bread and all of these things, there is just so much work to be done in the manufacturing space with mm. cosmetics that that would be probably my next thing where there's just a massive, massive disconnect between, you know, what founders are trying to achieve and what the industry and consumers want from brands and then what the manufacturing process and setup is. Um, and so I kind of just like floundered around trying to figure that out over the years, um, working with different manufacturers, working with different cosmetic chemists, all of those things. Um, and in terms of ingredients, I really wanted to, you know, coming from Australia, um, 
be able to hero some of the amazing native ingredients that we have here. Um, and they are things like kakadu plum, which we have in our hair oil and our hair mask, um, that you see a lot in skincare, but not so much in hair. Mm. And I think that that's quite true for a lot of things. Like skincare is like miles and miles ahead of the hair care space. And so there's still a lot of opportunity to do really interesting formulas and interesting products that are highly effective that can, I guess, speak to these ingredients that you don't typically see in hair, but work amazingly well for hair. Um, and part of that, again, is goes back to the manufacturing process and some of the disconnects there where it's like you have to be able to get to certain like bulk order quantities and all of those things and prices are more expensive for things that aren't used as much. So that's been a really, and it continues, like it's an ongoing process. And I've spoken to so many other founders in the beauty space that experience the same thing, whether it's, I think there's like a, probably like a, you could count on two hands, like the, the type of issue that you'll encounter and almost every beauty founder will encounter it. Mm. A manufacturer dropping you, yeah. them approving a formula and then sending you the wrong one. Um, mm. <laughs> them not sticking to the brief. You give them a brief with certain prices and then they come back with like triple the price and all of those things where these things should be standardised, but they're not. How do you navigate some of those challenges, especially around like cost, you know, the cost of these really um, high quality, expensive ingredients and managing order quantities and all of that stuff? How have you navigated? How have you navigated that? Do you have any advice? Yeah. So for me, I think probably my best advice and, and is something that a few of the guests have probably said on the podcast in the past, which is like delegate. Um, I'm not like, that's not my strength. My mm. strength, like Anna, to your point is in the brand and the creative and, and crafting story and that kind of thing. And so we work with um, basically like an operations partner that helps me with all of those things. Um, so navigating conversations with manufacturers, navigating, um, you know, negotiating on price. Um, there's still things that I'm part of and, and part of those conversations, but we also have that expertise on board who works on and has worked on a number of other brands in the past to understand where those benchmarks are and to make sure that we're doing the right thing and getting the right prices and ordering the right quantities and all of those things. So we are in a position that I think a lot of beauty brands in the beginning don't find themselves in, which is that we have enough stock. Mm. <laughs> a lot of brands sell out quite quickly because the, like the numbers aren't really solidified in the beginning. Having, I'm, I'm speaking too soon though because we were literally just on an operations call this morning about some out of stocks. But <laughs> to date, <laughs> we um, have been able to navigate that well because we've delegated that expertise. Yeah, great advice. We want to talk about that relationship in a little bit um, when we talk about Sephora, but we just want to quickly touch on what you said before and your strength of mm. creativity and brand. And, you know, you have said before that your intention was to create this visual universe for the customer. How did you go about creating the visual identity for bread? Because it's so fucking cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so that again has been a massive challenge. I think that um, when you're a founder that is creative, it can be really, really difficult to find someone that can um, articulate mm. what's in your head onto paper or onto a screen because you know what you want it to look like and you know what, it's almost like a feeling. It's not something that's as tangible as accounting. 
Um, and it can be extremely subjective. Mm. And so when you have an idea of what you want something to be and how you want to feel when you see it and what your kind of response to it is, um, that is, that's a challenge to be able to get a designer to express it for you. Um, I'm not a trained designer, um, but I think that I have a almost like an organic eye. Like I just like certain things and dislike other things. And so it's also really difficult to be able to articulate that um, to an expert who is trained in design to translate it. Um, and so we worked with a number of different designers over the course of the years and, and to get us to our final kind of launch point. Um, and in the end, I think that a lot of it came down to like finding someone who could simply just I would say this is, I would mock it up myself. This is what it needs to look like and I need you to do it in design. <laughs> execute. <laughs> Whatever the yeah. program is yeah. and execute it. Um, and then, you know, come back to me with suggestions if if you might and we can discuss it and if I say no in the end it's a no and you just please just do what I've asked (laughs) (laughs) just do what I say (laughs) get rid of it (laughs) yeah which can be really hard because and Mm. it's you know designers they they want to design um so that continues to be an ongoing um I guess challenge for us to figure out is like how do we have me as the creative director and me as the creative eye but someone able to execute exactly what I want or do I just go and, you know, train myself and get, and do it <laughs> get yourself. a qualification yeah. so I know what I'm doing and then hire for every other function and then that person is me, um, which is not very typical of a startup setup. You know, I'm also the CEO and so it's like how do you then delegate that responsibility because design is time-consuming. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's been that's been really hard and I think it's, it's still evolving. Like our brand and our design is still evolving and I think it's really interesting when you launch and people like the feedback that you get from people and you're like, no, that's no, that's not, it's not done yet. Don't worry. <laughs> We're still what? doing things, but people are like, oh, it's so cool. And this and that. I'm like, no, this isn't it. Or just wait. This no, still just like, there's, there's more. Can yeah. you, can you talk us through the brand universe that, um, the visual universe that you're creating, what that, what that means and how you've approached it in terms of bread? Yeah. I think for me, it's like, and I, I think probably a lot of us have been inspired by what Emily created with Glossier in the sense that, you know, it's a brand, it's a skincare brand, but you would want to wear the sweatshirt of that brand. Um, and I think that that can be true for, for any brand in the beauty space, but very, very difficult to do. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, even a brand like Glossier at, at the size that it is now probably experiencing those growing pains where it's like, how do you maintain that aesthetic and that appeal but still be commercially successful. Mm. Um, And so for bread, like a lot of our brand design and this universe that we're trying to create has very much been inspired by the woman and the girl that we're seeing online Um, and the way that she presents herself. Like how do we take that and capture that and bottle it up and present it back to her in a way where she's like, yes, that's my identity and I want to own these products and I want to be part of this brand experience beyond just the products that you sell. Um, And I think that, I think we're on our way there. And I think part of the reason I say that is the feedback that we get, which is around like people wanting to buy, you know, 
bags and things that have the brand name on it and not just the, the wet product that you put on your hair. It's like, how can we buy a piece of this brand that expresses that we own the brand? Like whether it's our scrunchies, like wearing it on your wrist or yeah, owning something that is, you know, branded <laughs> with bread or it's a hair ribbon or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's a really positive signal and we just need to kind of move into the next phase of scaling that up in a way where we don't lose our our brand voice. Mm, your secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, it's very intangible. Like yeah, you, it's like, mm, yeah, that thing. Yeah. How do you make something cool without saying we're making something cool? Yeah. And, like, yeah. how do you make something cool without being like, hey, this is really cool? This is really like, cool. You yeah. Have, you, you, have you articulated what that is for you, for bread? Um, honestly, I think it's really just one sitting in that space of like if we were that girl and if bread was that girl what would it look like and that is ultimately like how you tap into that cool factor like you see something online and then you're like you know it when it's cool it's like there's like a nonchalantness to it there's a real like lack of um almost just a lack of thought but in a really considered way. Effort, Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like you don't I have to think about it. sort of. Yes, like an effortless, effortlessness. Less, <laughs> that word. Um, and really, it's almost like you're doing something and you're presenting something in a way that is not for any particular gaze. I'm not presenting this for you to look at. I'm just mm. presenting. Mm. It's almost like that, which is, it's, it's extremely intangible. And it's a very... <laughs> <laughs> to kind of define it. Maybe that should be something that I should do a thesis around. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. The intangibility of like cool factor. So you had a pretty life-changing experience. Was it last year or the year before? when you got into the Sephora Accelerator Program, the Global Sephora Accelerator Program, one of the first Aussies to ever do so. Um, And that took you over to the US and you ended up pitching to investors and all of that fun stuff. How did that experience, how did that opportunity come about for you? And was that something that was always always on your agenda? As in Sephora or Sephora Accelerator? Well, no, well, both, both. Yeah, I definitely think it was. So interestingly, when I left L'Oreal, before I left, I had found out about the Sephora Accelerate program. I think I read about it on an industry newsletter or something. And it was the first year that they had run it. It was invite only, so you couldn't apply. And I knew that I wanted to leave and, and start a brand. And I remember thinking like, you know, if we were to launch or if I was to launch a brand, wouldn't it be cool to be able to launch with a retail partner like Sephora. And so Accelerate had always been on my radar. I remember sending an email to the program manager at the time, and I still have it in my inbox. And I asked, are you guys going to run this again? And will it be open for people to apply? Uh, I can't quite remember what she said in response. I think she said that it would be and to keep an eye on the website. And so it had always been in the back of my mind. And then once I was kind of getting closer to, you know, wanting to launch this brand and and knowing that bread, it would make sense for bread to exist in Sephora um, because we wanted that girl who was going in there and shopping for Fenty or shopping for her skincare and, and her makeup 
to be able to have this option in hair. I was like, that's our girl and that's where she's going and we need to exist there. Um, I got an introduction to the program manager um, through someone I had met when I was working at the league and managed to meet with her in San Francisco. And she said, you know, it's probably going to open up to Australia-based founders next year and you should apply. And so I did. And luckily for me, I had also been speaking to uh, a Sephora buyer over the years who ended up putting me forward for Sephora Accelerate and still went through a bunch of different interviews and, you know, phone interviews, video interviews, in-person interviews. Um, before getting the call to say that I was in, which was like mind boggling to me because I didn't have a product yet. I didn't have a product. The brand wasn't done. Um, and I, I knew that this would be like almost like the ticket to get us to the next stage. Um, and so when I did get in, I was like, it's actually happening and it's actually going to happen. <laughs> that was the point at which I was like, this is what I needed. And now like, let's go. (laughs) How important do you think it was like over the years you had sort of built these relationships with the Sephora buyers, you met one of their head merchants at Teen Vogue in LA. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you, you had sort of Pe- yeah, you peppered all of these relationships and kept all of these relationships over so many years and they ultimately, you know, helped lead you to where you are. How important do you think that has been for you in terms of getting into Sephora and your success? Um, I think it's just the critical piece. It, it really is. Like, I, I can't remember where I had learnt this or, or heard this um, and it's probably someone famous that <laughs> said this <laughs> quote, which is that it, it sounds very um, transactional, but it's really not. But it's the idea that every opportunity is connected to a person. Mm-hmm. Like opportunities don't exist in thin air. Like everything we do is connected to people. And so I knew that ultimately I wanted to launch this brand. I didn't know when, I didn't know how. But I knew that it was critical that I was meeting people and developing relationships, no matter what they were. Like it actually didn't, it wasn't like a, oh, that person does this and this person knows that, I need to speak to them and get to know them. It was like, no, more broadly, I want to connect with people and I want to get to know people and to understand them and be in these spaces and know people, but for them to also know me. Mm. Um, And there was no, there's, wasn't really necessarily a particular end. It was just, I know I'm going to launch this brand and I'm going to need the right people around me to kind of get there along the way. All of the pieces that fell together kind of just fell together because of that. It wasn't like, oh, I know this person, you know, lives in San Francisco. They probably know someone from Sephora. They could probably introduce me to the the person who runs the Accelerate program. I had no idea. I was just like, you know what? This person seems really great. They're kind of, you know, on the periphery of what I'm doing, I should get to know them. Um, And then, you know, years later, that's when you can kind of reach out and be like, hey, I'm doing this, Um, would love your advice or would love some help. And then people come back to you with, well, I know this person, I'm gonna introduce you and all of those things. So I think it's definitely, um, it's the missing link, I think, in a lot of things is if you don't have that relationship building or those personal relationships, everything can kind of not fall apart, but like it's much harder to get Mm. to the next spot. And 
even being on both ends of something, you realise how important that is. Mm. Like we were um, like hiring for a role and I often look at these things and I'm like, I know this person is out there, but I don't know who they are. Mm. And the only way that I would know who they are and the only way they would know who we are is if, like, we get to know them. If somebody somebody else knows them who can introduce us or, like, send them their way. Like, you know, we have the internet and the internet's amazing and it can connect so many dots, but at the end of the day it's still just a system made of people. Yeah. Mm. Everything, every decision is made by a person. I love how you broke that down. Every opportunity, you know, Mm. just comes back to a relationship with someone and you are so good at building your network and building relationships. Mm. Do you have advice for other people that may, that may not be a strength because it's definitely a strength of yours. And yeah, I think, you know, some people, it it is the missing link for a lot of um, businesses that need to kind of take Mm. it to the next level. Do you have any advice on how to go about building really strong business relationships or professional relationships? Yeah, I think it's a, it's much more of a softer skill. Mm. So it's harder to um, to quantify or to really be able to like teach yourself. But I think you can. There are ways that you can. And I think actually a good place to start is with some Oprah books. <laughs> Great. Tell us more. <laughs> um, I think that Oprah is probably the world's number one networker and mm. has been for her entire career. Um, and I've read a couple of her books. I read I read a um, biography that was, it wasn't written by her. It wasn't an approved biography, but it was still like a, a positive one. Mm. Um, and I just remember like reading like little pieces of that that really go to the heart of the way that she was able to build relationships. Um, whether it's, you know, following up with people out of the blue you know, sending thank yous, like all of those little things that add up that make you a person that people want to be around. Mm. Um, And people that you want to be around are people that you want to work with and they're people that you want to give opportunities for and people that you're always kind of thinking about in the back of your mind so that when someone says something, you think, oh, you know, Anna was thinking about doing that or Anna wanted to meet someone that was doing that and then Mm. you connect the dots you don't always have to be front and center like having conversations with them at the time you could have gone like three months without having spoken to them and they still think about you um so Oprah is definitely a good place to start another really good book to read which Oprah wrote herself is um what I know for sure yeah, I think it's called book. yeah it's a great book yeah. I think we've got it on the book yeah we do yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah yeah that's an amazing book and it was one of the audiobooks I, I listened to it as an audiobook and then I think I read the actual book as well um that really was kind of pivotal in mm. in there she is there she is <laughs> the book. we'll put these in the show notes as well mm. yeah so that that was one of the really great books that I read that I think definitely helped me to develop my um intrapersonal skills mm. Mm. great advice thanks for that So the Sephora Accelerator, let's get back to that. It culminated in a demo day at the end where you were able to present and pitch to some fairly big investors, big people, big brands. Can you tell us what opportunities came out of that? Who did you meet? What happened next? Yeah. So demo day was crazy. Like it was (laughs) unbelievable. Um, and I was so nervous. I don't think I've ever been that nervous in my life. Like I get nervous, but I don't usually get super, super nervous when I have to speak in front of crowds. I prefer to speak in front of a big crowd than a few people. 
Um, but I was, I, I've just never been that nervous in my entire life. <laughs> oh, no. What was going I, through your head on that I day? I think it was the pressure. I was yeah. like, this is it. This oh, is really? this is the opportunity. Like it's all culminating in this one and moment. If you stuff this up, <laughs> very Eminem. Of me, yeah, yeah like your life's you, over. <laughs> Mum's spaghetti on the sweater. Um, <laughs> if you stuff this up, like you go back to not back to square one, but it's like you have to try and recreate this moment again. Mm. And so, I think that all of the nerves around that just built up, um, and knowing that I really had to nail this. To, to get to the next phase that I knew we could get to if I did a good job. Um, and so there was about 100 plus people in the room. The majority of those were investors and already interested in, in beauty and making investments in beauty. And so I did my presentation. And How many minutes like little was the pitch? Was five. It a, oh, five, five minute pitch. Okay, that's pretty five. long. How did you go? Like, what did you rate yourself at the end? I think it was actually three minutes. Oh, my gosh. That's all fine. of us were going over and then I remember the program manager, she was like, it's five, it's fine. It's actually five, it's not three, but we're telling you three. Right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we, um, yeah, I think I did all right. I mean, I definitely, like, had some shaky moments. Um, but overall, you know, did, did a good job. And, and then we had the booth at the end where people get to come up. And I remember at the end of my presentation, I was like, so we're raising, um, around. And if you want to come and chat to me about it and give me money, come over to my booth and get a free bread scrunchie. And <laughs> when I tell you it was a mosh pit, <laughs> I'm like, are you guys here to give me money or just or to just take to a bread scrunchie? scrunchie. <laughs> You give me millions and millions of dollars and I'll give you a free scrunchie. I mean, the value exchange right there. I thought we're getting a great deal. Um, So (laughs) it was just pandemonium. I don't even remember everyone that I met that night, but I had a lanyard and I remember just putting everyone's cards in my lanyard. So was it pandemonium at every booth or was it only pandemonium at the bread booth? I actually don't know because everyone was kind of scattered around, but I definitely know that ours was like pumping a lot. I'm pretty sure I was the only one that was like, I'm going to give you free stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, like that. Giveaways always works. Freebies. Um, so, yeah, we I met a, a couple of really important conversations that I had. Um, one was with um, an investor who ended up giving me an introduction to our lead investor. Um, and she was great. She worked for a, a much bigger fund that invests in growth um, and but said, you know, you're, if you're raising pre-seed, I know someone who might be interested. So gave us that introduction. And then I also met um, Jana there who is part of a company called or runs a company called Epic Brands um, who work as our operating partner. So can you tell us a little bit about the investment seeking process, <laughs> the fundraising process. How, like, how, what was your experience of that process? How many meetings did you have? What were the conversations like? Can you take us kind of behind the scenes? Yeah. So funnily enough, I don't know why I did this, but every time I had gone to the United States in the past for uh, like an event or something, I would always add on extra time just in case I met people who wanted to meet up again or like have a proper meeting or I met an investor who wants to whatever. For some reason, for demo day, I only scheduled in an extra two days. 
after demo day before flying home. I think at that point I was so worn out. Mm. I had done so many trips that I was like, I really just want to get home. And so after (laughs) I'd had this uh, demo day and met a bunch of people, I ended up having to schedule in back-to-back 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. meetings on both of those days. Um, And that was really intense. I think all of the conversations that I'd had prior to that with investors or angel investors, the conversation was a lot softer. It wasn't like a, and, and that was on my part, it was less about like we're raising X amount by X date um, these are the terms, etc. It was more like, yeah, we want to fundraise and, you know, I'm trying to raise this amount. And it was a lot like softer in conversation. Mm-hmm. So there was no definitive yeses or definitive noes. Um, but in those conversations that I had after demo day, um, it was a lot more accelerated and, you know, we had, you know, defined amounts by that point. It was like, yeah. we need to raise this amount by this day because now I have a Sephora contract and I have to launch in July. So we need your money um, by this day. And I guess it was, it was really intense. I remember thinking like, I know people said this was going to be hard, but this is next level. And, you know, you have multiple conversations, but I think through that process, I really discovered what it actually sounds like to get a yes um, or to get an almost yes versus what it sounds like to get a a non-committal yes, which is actually a no. Um, what was the difference? the difference? The questions. Okay. So um, it's, it, the style of question is very different when you're getting closer to a yes versus they just want it. They're probably just mining for information or um, they're kind of like so-so about it. But I felt that the conversation I had with our our lead and a few others was much more about like they were already in. They were like, oh, this looks great. Founder looks great. Um, you know, plan looks great. Sephora contract, amazing. Tick, tick, tick. And the questions were more around just like a final vetting almost versus a really trying to um, pull everything apart, mm. basically, and coming to the conversation with, you know, an idea of what they think, but not like a set um, thesis, because a lot of investors have a thesis around what works and what doesn't. And if you fall outside of that, they're generally like actually not that interested. Mm. They're probably just trying to get you to the point of moulding to their thesis versus <laughs> them saying, oh, that's an interesting viewpoint and we're going to back you on what you think you should do. Um, versus this is what we think you should do and I don't think that's what you're doing, so we're not going to invest. How much conviction did you have in terms of your plan? Like, did you go into these investor meetings going, okay, yes, you had the Sephora contract, but beyond that, did you have a really clear, solid growth, launch and growth plan or did you go into those meetings sort of without that conviction? Like, how did, yeah, how did you approach that? Um, I definitely had conviction around the brand and and what we were doing and what I saw as the long-term opportunity. Different investors asked different levels of detail. So some wanted, like, what's your marketing plan, like, week by week, like, like, plot that out for us. Tell us exactly what you're going to do. And others want just more of an overall, like, kind of plan. And to be honest, I don't think that either one of those processes or ways is wrong, but it really depends on the situation. 
So for me, it was like, I actually don't have time for this because one, I need your money so I can build a team and that we can actually get these processes in place. I'm going to spend two weeks putting this plan together for you. And, you know, maybe you're not even going to invest. And that's time that I could have spent like with your money, like getting shit done. (laughs) So, um, I think it really, it really depends on the situation. If we were like, yeah, two years out from launch, that would have been perfectly fine. Um, but we had a really short time frame, and it was like, no, we need to go with the people that can just trust that we'll get it done yeah. and we'll figure it out along the way. So you, you ended up with, um, it's kind of like a pick and mix, isn't it? Imaginary Ventures, you almost, well, you secured nearly $2 million just under. So what was the relationship with that one like heading into it? Were you, did you have like an inkling that that was going to be the one? And just for those of you playing at home, they've backed Glossier, Skims, who else have they backed? They've Good American, uh, Good American, Cosas, just a couple of um, big brands, some really amazing brands. How yeah. was how was that? How was the relationship with them? You know, in the beginning, and what's it like now? Um, it was just so different from all the other conversations that I had had. And so I remember I, I did have that first conversation, and but by that point I had been burnt. Like I'd had another conversation with an investment group where I was like, oh, this is it. Like I can stop. Like you know, on the grind, like they're definitely in, like it's happening. Um, And then it didn't happen. And so by that point I was burnt. So I had a really great first conversation with Imaginary and I remember thinking like, oh, I think this might be it. And then I'm like, no, don't. Don't (laughs) Don't get your phone down. (laughs) Um, And that was probably a good thing in the sense that in my mind I was like, oh, yeah, this might happen, it might not. Mm. And I just need to like carry on as if it's not. Um, because, you know, it, it might not happen. And so don't put all your eggs in that basket. But then, you know, had a number of conversations after that. And I could really just tell that they understood what we were trying to do. Um, and it was something that they were looking for, um, which just made the relationship that much better. And I think what I really appreciated about Imaginary is that they did what a lot of other investors didn't do, which was go straight to the source and, um, in funding, like they, they say this thing happens where it's like it, there's FOMO. So mm. when a deal is hot, like everyone wants in on it. It's like you just need that one like big lead or like one in, or two investors to be in and then everyone else wants in and there's this real sense of like, oh, i got to get in on this deal. But until you have a lead, you're a dud. <laughs> you got nothing. A dud? Oh, no. So did no you go, did you go, it's country. like a rolling stone, isn't it? You just like collect, <laughs> yeah. collect, 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 but you got to get that. Somebody needs to push you over the edge. So you went yeah. from like dud to stud. Dud to overnight. stud. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's how Dud to stud. That's how it generally goes. Um, Love that. And so, but then it's like, okay, but then who, like, who is the lead relying on? If all of the other investors are like, oh, we're waiting for that one person or we're waiting for that lead, mm. so that then we're like excited about it and can come in, like, who does the lead go to? They really have to just rely on their own conviction yeah. and say, we think this is it. And they did, you know, have a conversation with Sephora and say, right. what's coming ah. up? <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, what's, you know, what are you guys working on? And um, almost like a reference check as well. Like, Did, did you know they were this, doing that? This makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've got this random girl. Actually, no, I don't think I did. I think I may have found out after, but it wasn't, I don't think it was a conversation was necessarily yeah. about us. It was just a general conversation and they happened to speak to also you know, the hair care buyer, but 
Um, yeah, I mean, you're just like this random person coming to us and saying that they've got a contract to. Yeah, do they actually? Like, <laughs> I mean, look, I maybe mean, they do. Maybe you don't. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> actually, can I ask? I mean, Maeva has made up a few little ones. You know, just. Uh, they just sprinkle a little. So good white lies. Yeah, like good white lies. San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all done it. Let's be honest. Oh yeah, that's a funny story. Actually, the San Francisco one. Just tell that quickly. Yeah. So I was. This was when I first met um, someone from Sephora, and Anna, you were there. We were I was together. there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in LA and yeah. at this um, this event, and knew that there was a Sephora VP, and I really wanted to try and get in front of her, and so. I managed to corner her and was like, hey, I'm launching this brand. Like, what advice do you have for me to get a meeting with a hair care buyer? And she was like, well, do you have samples? And I was like, oh, I have some really early samples and I have a a deck. And she was like, great, well, send it to me and here's my card um, and I'll make sure it gets to the right person. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Just like, how easy was that? I'm like, that was really too easy. But I also <laughs> said to her, I'm like, you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco, which I knew I knew that that's where the Sephora office yeah. was. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to be there. I'm definitely going to be there. So, you know, what's your advice for getting me? <laughs> and once I gave her that card and she was like, send it to me, I was like, oh, crap, I have to book my flight now. So I ended up booking really last minute. I think it was Friday. So I booked yeah. to go on Sunday and um, like super early in the morning and fly back like I think Monday night or something ridiculous. And I remember <laughs> the flight was delayed and I was freaking out because I'm like, I need to get to the hotel and finish this deck so I can send it or this is all going to be a waste of time. Um, but once that happened, I sent the deck off and then I got a response the next day on Monday saying I can meet you tomorrow. And I thought, oh, my God, crap. I'm going to have to change my flight. Like, <laughs> it was actually a, a bus. I was taking a bus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but because my flight had been delayed, I got refunded my ticket. Oh, <laughs> so that's awesome. I didn't, it didn't, I didn't end up having to, like, lay out any extra money and it was all very serendipitous. I thought, wow, that's why the flight was delayed, so I could get my money back and change my flight. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, if I hadn't have said that and, and kind of, I guess, pressed the urgency of like, yeah, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there, um, it may not have happened. What other moments have, have you had like that where you've kind of really pushed yourself and put yourself out there and it's paid off? I would say another example of that is actually the time I met Elaine Welteroth. So Elaine was the former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue and I found out that she was going to be in Sydney I found out very last minute and she was someone that I had always admired and looked up to and really was desperate to meet one day and found out she was in Sydney for like a book. Um, uh, it's like the Writers' Festival. And I <laughs> I emailed her. I found her email on the internet. Uh, emailed her and said, hey, I'm in Sydney. Um, would love to catch up for a coffee. Like told her who I was and, you know, explained that, you know, I'd been a really big fan and, and loved her work and all of those things. Would love to meet you for a coffee and, and have a chat. And she responded saying, yeah, absolutely. Which I think in that scenario is a good way to kind of get in front of people. It's like mm. when you're in a foreign country and you know nobody and mm. someone's approached you and said, hey, I'm this person and do you want to meet? You're more likely to say yes because you're like, I don't know anybody here. Got no mates. Yeah, <laughs> waiting for a mate constantly. Um, and so I was like, great, literally booked a flight to fly like the next morning I to go to that. Sydney. I love that. <laughs> so good. I and mean, yeah. I never would have been at that Teen Vogue conference had I not done that because yeah, so Elaine is the teen, one yeah, yeah. Yeah, who said we're doing this conference and she got me like the backstage ticket and made me 
go over. So, which is where you met the head merchant from Sephora, which is when you flew to San Francisco, oh and it's like you really need to plot this out chronologically because it's kind of a great story. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like back in primary school, where you, this is my life. Yeah, the timeline. Like the little, yeah, the timeline. Yeah, the timeline. Yeah, we need the timeline. And then actually, you should set it up almost like a snakes and ladders. Yes. Like you say, yeah, but then you fall down yeah. here, <laughs> and then we get back up and we meet this person. Yeah. Yeah. That one didn't go so well. Yeah. 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 So because it sounds true. super linear, but it's not. Totally. It's very much. Like, there's so many other things, you know. So this year, Bread finally launched into the world. It was born. We've got um, Sephora USA, obviously, which we've spoken about, and .com, your own sick website. So can you chat us through the launch strategy? I know there was probably, I mean, obviously COVID world, you know, a few things happened, but talk us through, talk us through what you planned, what worked, what can we take away from the bread launch? Yeah, it was obviously a really weird time to launch a brand in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and so we, a lot of our focus for launch was on operations, right? So getting product from one country to another, getting it into a warehouse in the midst of like multiple shutdowns, in the midst of freight costs tripling and Um, not being able to get stock on boats and all sorts of things that kind of compound when you have a global supply chain um, where one thing is closed and then you get get something on the boat and then by the time it gets somewhere, like another thing is closed and you can't get it into the country. And um, so our launch focus was very much uh, basically trying to get like product into a warehouse. (laughs) It's like, let's get the product into the Sephora warehouse as our number one priority Um, And then a lot of our, I guess, initial push was around press. Um, So press influences getting us into the hands of the right people and the right publications to kind of build out that brand equity to start, Um, which is often, it's almost like a slower growth model because you, everything is focused on brand and brand storytelling uh, and product storytelling as well. Um, but it's really about establishing like what this brand is and what it means for the category and less about like a hard sell um, because you only get one chance to say like, here is who we like who we are and this is what we stand for. And um, that looks very different for every single brand. But for us, it was like we needed to focus on press. Um, we launched with a press agency um, that's based in New York. So, you know, they know the lay of the land and in terms of timeline, I mean, I mean, we could have gone much bigger and much broader, but at the end of the day, like we were beholden to actual product. Um, and so there was a lot of like preceding that we couldn't do because of timelines. And we just yeah. had to like, first and foremost, get product into a warehouse mm-hmm. and then think about how we get it into yeah. the right hands, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't think that there, there was no way around that. Like it, it was what it was. And if we wanted to push the launch out, that's something that we would have had to have done. And I, I just don't think that that would have been the right decision at the time. Um, and I'm glad that we, we, even though the timeline was much shorter than we would have liked, um, I'm glad that we're out in the world now and that we came out to the world when we did because it's like we now get to be the brand that is first. I'm sure there'll be many copycats on their way, yeah. but at least we're first. And I think that ugh, like copycats are annoying. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that, a strength that we have and a lot of brands that are founder-led have mm. is that there's no corporation that can replicate what you do. Yeah. Um, and while they're copying what you're doing, you're already thinking about the next what, what you're doing next. 
So they're always just playing catch up. Um, and that's just like one of the ways that we have a competitive advantage. I just wanted to ask one final question around launch or marketing, I guess, in general, around um, your influencer strategy and user-generated content. How important is that in terms of your overall content and marketing strategy? Yeah, it's always been something that we wanted to be part of our brand identity. And so in building out what the brand would look like, I was like, cool, we have to take that into consideration. It's like we don't want to have like super glossy overdone campaign imagery because that's kind of our like what we're fighting against is like we don't want to look super photoshopped or overdone and all of our aesthetic has been based around this woman and so how do we make sure that as a brand we have space to incorporate her own imagery and what she's already doing into like the language of the brand um and so that's been really amazing and just being able to connect with a lot of the girls that we connected with like pre-launch who were already had no idea what this brand would be or what it would look like but just based on the way we described it were already really excited <laughs> about working with us and then of course like now that we're out in the world um we're getting a lot more inbound but that was all very much us identifying people that it was like cool well you are the brand and so we want to work with you and and part of I guess Bread's mission is around being able to I mean one get to the point where we are like super commercially successful so that we can support more creators of color because Mm. that's who we hero in all of Mm. our brand imagery um and then you know in the meantime like how do we support creators in a way that is beneficial for both of us where you know we really get to rely on their own imagery as part of our brand aesthetic but then we also pay them and so it's like Mm. commercially um a benefit for them and and then they also get to kind of have some of them their first experience working with a brand because they're not necessarily influencers Mm. they're just like random people who are like you're really cool (laughs) so we want to work with you (laughs) this is literally just you trolling instagram and finding people that align with your vibe yeah me and me and the team as well yeah 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 So we always like to give our guests, as you may know, the opportunity to do a bit of a shout out to one special woman who has helped them on their way. And so we'd love to ask you, who's one one woman, one person that has really helped you on your way, been pivotal to your success? Um, It's so difficult because there are actually so many, like so, so many, and like different people that have helped in so many different ways. Um, but I might do two, um, and I'm going to say you guys. Aww. And Caitlin from Lady Brains. Aww. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't um, a setup, yeah. by the way. We weren't yeah. expecting no, I know. I know. Yeah, I'll tell the people that. This was not arranged. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, our journey as well is so special mm. in the sense that I think that you know, our relationship and we all met at the right time Mm. and to have gone on like the initial lady brains building journey with you both and also to get like actually so much validation from both of you as well um, to like, you know, we were strangers Mm. and, you know, we became really good friends over the years. But at that time, like we really didn't know each other that well, but just to get that validation from two people who I thought were really smart 
and really accomplished and for you guys as well to be like wow bread is amazing and like you have like all of this talent and even just to get that feedback from you guys on like brand and creative which was a lot of the stuff that we worked on in the beginning like all of that goes such a long way to like giving someone the confidence to actually pursue something. Maeva, you're such an inspiration to all of us and we feel very, very lucky to call you one of our best friends. Maeva really reminded us in this chat that anything is possible. No vision is too big. No goal is too ambitious. All we have to do is set the intention and take the teeny tiny actions that will set us on the path. Secondly, every opportunity comes through a person. The saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know, really is true. When you meet someone, be curious and take a genuine interest and always keep your relationships warm by reaching out now and then in a way that really offers value. And lastly, we absolutely love Maver's approach to business and life. Do all the things that other people won't. If you are constantly pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, like jumping on a plane last minute and going to San Francisco, then you'll give yourself a much, much better chance of success. We really hope you enjoyed this chat. For more potty action, follow us on Instagram at lady.brains. You can join us in our Facebook group, The Lady Brains Clubhouse, or you can sign up to our monthly newsletter at ladybrains.com.au. Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.